This is Eddie Sanchez. This is Rodney Crowther. And you are now listening to Enlighten Me. Hey, Eddie, have you ever served on a jury? I haven't. I've had summons before, but I wasn't actually chosen. Okay, so you just got called in and yeah, yes, sir. be in the pool for a few minutes and they send you home? Yep, exactly. Okay, yeah. You know, I was just thinking there's always like some true crime show on at my house and we watch Law & Order forever. So I w- it just hit me, though, recently, like with all this content about in not even just the entertainment stuff, but the public conversation about criminal justice. How much does the average person actually know about what goes on in a jury room? I know very little, to be honest, and it's not one of those things that we really get informed about. You know, nobody joins a jury and talks about their experiences. It's kind of one of those things that really is vague and nobody talks about a ton. Yeah, you're right. I mean, people talk about, we all hear it's a jury of your peers, but then we watch crime stories and it's all about the defendant and the prosecutors or the police. So, like, you know, jurors are kind of key there. They're the ones saying guilty or innocent. So I know that during our last episode, you teased that you were going to be covering jury duty. So how did that end up going for you? You know, it was a really fascinating journey I went on with a couple of our professors. And, you know, I can't wait to really get into those interviews. They gave me some interesting perspective and some things to think about and actually blew my mind with a couple of facts about how our system really works. Who did you get a chance to speak with? Well, I started off with Dr. Angela Jones from the Department of Criminal Justice. Yeah, I am uh, Dr. Angela Jones. I'm an associate professor in the School of uh, Criminal Justice and Criminology. I study legal decisions. I'm a psychologist by training. Uh, so I'm really interested in decisions from the perspective of uh, jurors in particular. She actually had a couple of the biggest revelations for me just on kind of the nuts and bolts of how things work and how they don't necessarily work and some things that you think are should be really open and obvious are kind of opaque. How did you go from psychology to criminal justice? Well, I got my bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Um, I initially thought, I'm going to be a cop, (laughs) which my mom was terrified about. But I just always loved school. Uh, So I got my master's degree in criminology. I thought I would stick with that and um, kind of just happen upon learning about wrongful convictions. And everything from that field of research came from psychology. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit about how our justice system works. And I think every American knows we learn early in school that uh, you have the right to a trial by jury in our system. But why do we have a trial by jury? I mean, it pulls from English common law. It's a constitutional right. Uh, The defendant has a right to a trial by a jury of their peers. And it puts this buffer between the citizen accused and the state who's really powerful. They're so powerful. They have the right to take away your freedom the right to take away uh, your life even. And so this provides that buffer where the state has a very high burden of proof to be able to take away that freedom or potentially your life. It also provides an opportunity for the community to be involved in the process and making sure that they have a voice um, uh, representing the value of the community, what they what they value, what they prioritize, and, and having a say in what should happen to this person that potentially did a wrong against society. Have you ever served on a jury? Oh, I wish. <laughs> Never. I've been called multiple times, and every case, every time either the case uh, was resolved by plea or there was a delay or something. So, no, I would love to if the opportunity ever happened, but it, it's getting harder because I know more and more prosecutors and judges now in the county, so it's uh, that might be would be tough. And then, obviously, what I study probably would uh, make at least the prosecutor probably be a little more suspicious. You know, the average person isn't a prosecutor or a defense attorney or 
Um, hopefully, the average person isn't a criminal. So jury duty is probably how most people get involved in the, the justice system. How does the jury selection process actually work, like the nuts and bolts of it? Well, it's the judge has a lot of discretion. Uh, so the judge may be the one to ask a lot more questions of potential jurors. They may give up a lot of that to attorneys, whether it's be the defense and the or the or the state to ask questions of jurors. We often actually refer to it as a process of jury deselection hmm. um, because it's not so much about getting the fairest jurors, the most impartial jurors. It's more about getting rid of or weeding out the ones that could be the most problematic. Okay, so that's the perspective that the attorneys come from. Yeah, I mean, idealistically, we're going to get a jury of impartial people who are unbiased and there to make an objective decision based solely on the facts of the case and nothing else. But in re- in reality, right, the attorneys want to get the people ideally most favorable to their side, but at the end of the day, the ones least favorable to their sides, they want to get rid of them. Did Dr. Jones describe what makes a good juror? Yeah, she gave a little insight into what both sides, like prosecutors and defense attorneys, are looking for and just kind of overall what we would want in our criminal justice system, the kind of person we want in the jury box. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a lot of variation in the way attorneys approach this. They're going to try to push the judge a little bit to see how much they can talk about the case without getting in trouble to start to immediately sway the jury from the beginning before they even know who the six or 12 people are going to be. But they're looking for, again, jurors that are going to be the most amendable to their case. Actually, uh, the case I sat in on the other day, they were talking about, they were actually talking about wrongful convictions, which I was really surprised about and how people felt about that, which is starting to get a little bit broad, but the judge allowed it um, because it gets to people's predispositions, right? How are they, what are they, where are they at when they walk in the door? And how much is that going to potentially influence their ability to objectively evaluate the case? Are there any jobs that essentially bar you from being a part of a jury? Yeah, I asked Dr. Jones that because, you know, like, I used to be a newspaper reporter and both times I got called for jury duty then, I got struck immediately. Because you were a reporter. Okay. Yeah. So there's two ways attorneys can get rid or uh, remove jurors from from the pool. So one is called a strike for cause. And that's where, yeah, if they have some explicit bias or something that would prevent them from being an impartial juror that they have expressed. Uh, so for example, the case I sat in on the other day, there were going to be very few witnesses in this case. And one of the key pieces of evidence was going to come from a police officer. Someone in the jury pool is currently a police officer at the Austin Police Department. So they were like, okay, we're going to strike him for cause. And the judge accepted that. But if you are, if an attorney is unable to get a juror struck for cause, then they have a limited number of what's called a peremptory challenge. And this is where they don't have to necessarily give a reason why. They can just say, I want to get rid of this person. And that's what happened to me. So I don't know if it was definitely my job. I just assumed that at the time. So. Yeah. So those peremptories, yeah. If if, uh, if the other side is concerned that an attorney is using that to strike someone based on, say, their race or gender, that's illegal. They can't do that. And they can challenge that. And the judge will have to make a decision. Decision. Is that the reason why they're trying to remove someone or is it for some other reason? Do you have any ideas, uh, statistics, how many people serve on juries in Texas in any given year? Yeah, I, I don't know that information. It's really hard to even find out how many people and who exactly is even in a jury pool in any given county. So there's no way for me to look up if I'm in this pod of potential jurors? No, apparently not. Uh, That's kind of amazing considering what kind of information you can look up about yourself, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we can find out who voted or who's registered to vote, but 
You can't tell me who could potentially be a juror? You can't really do that to be like, hey, am I actually in the jury pool in the place where I live? There's no way to look that up, which is incredible. Really? Yeah. I Every time I tell people this, they're just shocked. They're like, yeah, I've never thought about that. But oh, yeah. How do they construct the jury pools? And is it based off voter registration or driver's licenses or... Every county is slightly different. This is, you know, our, our whole system, right, is very decentralized. And so every, you know, jurisdiction has their own district clerk, and they may have slightly different ways they go about uh, composing their jury pool. Um, but yes, usually it's some combination of, um, you know, their driver's license, usually some kind of road, voter registration. Some people use even like um, people who are on public assistance. There's there's some variation for sure. But you can't look up and confirm that you're actually even on a list to be chosen. Uh, there's no way to know that. So we don't even know how many people there are. So I don't know how many people actually serve on a jury at any given time. But I will say that the vast majority of cases in the United States are resolved by a plea. Um, they don't even go to trial. About 95%, 90 to 95% of cases are resolved by police. So they never, the defendant never even gets to exercise their constitutional right to a trial by jury. Man, the fact that 95% of trials go to plea deals is really shocking. I would have thought that much more would involve juries. And Yeah, and I get the system likes plea deals because it's like it moves the case along faster and it's cheaper. It doesn't take as much like infrastructure to wrap those up. But, you know, for a constitutional right, trial by jury, the system seems really geared toward like using it as little as possible. Yeah, super opaque. That's kind of blew my mind right there. Yeah, I said the same thing. That's wild to think about. (laughs) It's a little concerning for those of us who really believe in the importance of uh, of a trial by jury uh, for ensuring justice. Yes, I think the implication of trial by jury is that it's a very transparent and open to the community process, but... And plea bargaining is the exact opposite of that. So when we started this conversation, you touched a little bit on how we see juries on TV and how they play out on shows like Law and Order and whatnot. Did you talk to Dr. Jones any about how those perceptions affect people in reality? Oh, yes, I definitely ask her how entertainment impacts what she actually sees when she's researching jury behavior. Did she tell you something pretty interesting about that? Um, you know, it was the obvious answer. Uh, TV is a lot more entertaining than reality. Yeah, it's never as dramatic as TV, right? Real life is, is quite a bit more boring. If you go to the Texas Texas Courts website where it talks about jury duty, it gives some advice to jurors out the gate before they even show up to say, you know, there's going to be a lot of downtime. Like, prepare yourself, maybe bring a book to read. Like, there's going to be a time where we don't want you to hear maybe some conversations that are being had between the attorneys and the judge. And then also, um, the judge will tell them, you know, you can't talk to other people about this case if you're chosen to be on the jury. You can't look up information, right? Don't go and be your own, like, investigator. Or sleuth, so you online can't sleuth. be in the jury box on your phone <laughs> researching yeah. what's been in the news about the case. Right, or go home at night and look it up and be like, I want to know everything about this defendant or potential victim. Because if you're not hearing that at trial, there's a reason why. And you are only supposed to be making that decision based on the evidence presented at trial. And if you learn something that you've done based on your own research outside of the trial, that information could be incredibly biasing and could actually affect that defendant's right to a fair trial. So it has tremendous implications if, say, the defendant was found guilty and then this later information was later uncovered that you went and investigated outside of the trial. 
are, I know in some cases there's a trial phase, but then a separate sentencing hearing. Is the same jury involved in both of those? Do they recall the same jurors for sentencing? Yeah, that's an excellent question because there's actually only, um, I think we're down to five or six states now that actually allow a jury to sentence in non-capital cases, and Texas is one of them. Uh, So the defendant can choose at the outset if they want a jury or a judge to sentence them if they are found guilty. And this is one of those really weird things, because this is exactly what happened in this case I sat in the other day, is during jury selection, the attorneys have to ask questions of this jury pool about sentencing before a verdict has been determined, because it will be the same jury. And so in this case, the defendant, if he were convicted, would have been eligible for probation upwards of 20 years in prison. And so the attorneys were asking questions, if you were to find this defendant guilty, we're not saying he's guilty, but if you were to find him guilty, do you think you could give someone convicted of sexual assault probation? So you imagine this can start doing things in a juror's mind, like I'm already thinking about this guy being guilty and like what's what's next? Right. You know, like so... That is a really weird, psychologically interesting way to go about approaching it. Um, if under the best of circumstances, idealistically, you would have a different jury, right? Because you would want to have them coming in with fresh eyes as opposed to like already be thinking ahead. This is the same process that we have in capital juries too. During the voir dire or the jury selection process, they're asking, would you be willing to give the death penalty if this person's convicted? So they're already thinking about that ahead of time. And it also results in a different composition of jurors than if those questions weren't asked or weren't a determining criteria for them to be on the jury. If there's one thing you could say to people who get a jury summons this week, (laughs) what would you tell them? Show up. (laughs) Show up. I, yeah, it's hard to give like advice or like thinking about how to prepare to be a juror. There's not really much you could do to prepare because every case is so different and you're not going to know what case you might potentially be assigned to. Right. They don't tell you what kind of case you're going up for when you get called. Yeah, that's right. You know nothing. You don't even know what your chances of actually being on that jury are, or if you're not chosen for that jury, will you get to do another? Like, you you don't know anything. You just know I need to show up at this time, and you're told to bring a book. <laughs> There's going to be some downtime. That's about it. Uh, so I, the the most redeeming quality in a juror, no matter whether you're the prosecution or the defense, is to have an open mind. Um, so if you go in and you realize that you're not going to be able to have an open mind because of whatever reason, you have a duty and obligation to express that out loud to those attorneys so they can make the best decision for their case. People need to participate for the system to work. They need to, and it's incredibly important. Um, I, I always try to encourage people to keep in mind that this is this defendant's most important day of their life. This will determine their future, potentially the rest of their life, and if they even live. And that's a huge obligation that any one juror has. And and that our government, our system of government, gives that opportunity to citizens to express their opinion and have that input on a case instead of having some very opaque system of justice that just happens behind a black curtain and you don't know anything about it. And, And then you don't know, is it just? Is it fair? Can I trust it? Should I believe in it? Right? So this is what helps us have a system that's more legitimate than maybe other governments that don't have this right in place for for a trial by jury. I am so far removed from the juror process. That was such an interesting conversation you guys had just because there were so many facts that I wasn't even aware of. And it's really important to be aware of how 
the jury process can affect somebody's life, you know, permanently. Yeah, you're right. And talking to her got me really thinking about the history of our system and, you know, how it's affected people over generations where we had a different understanding of like everybody's rights and roles in participating in our justice system. So I went over to our history department and found Dr. Justin Randolph. Sure. My name is Justin Randolph. I'm assistant professor. researches the history of criminal justice and some particular points in American history. I study the American South specifically. Um, I'm writing a book on the history of policing and the civil rights movement in Mississippi. Tell us a little more about you. Like, what got you interested in your field of research? Yeah, so I started as an oral historian uh, in the South. I wanted to um, collect histories and narratives from people um, who for a long time and for various reasons have been typically excluded from the historical record. Um, Everyday people, people who, um, you know, are not the the people calling the shots, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But who have lived meaningful lives and who deserve to have a record of their existence to survive for future generations to make sense of and to use and um, to think about. So I actually started uh, interviewing African-American farmers in and around where I grew up. Um, Farmers uh, in general are fewer and further between. Uh, but African-American landowners in the South particularly um, have declined precipitously in a slow fall since 1910 and especially since the 1950s. And so I was working for some historians at my, I was just an undergraduate at the time actually when I started. I was working for historians who were writing a book that's about to come out. 12 years later. Uh, That's how long this work and this important work takes uh, on the history of black land ownership in the South. Okay. And And how'd you go from that into starting the (laughs) justice system? Yeah, well, these stories that I had from farmers um, always involve law enforcement in one way or another. Um, And in particular, they involve what law enforcement policing the courts meant for people living on the land, people living rural existences. So many of our histories are about people living in cities. They're about street policing, uh, so-called street crime. Um, But actually, if you look at the countryside uh, in rural America, you get a much different view. And so, in fact, my my book project that... um, should be out in the next year, fingers crossed, uh, grew from an interview with a a family who um, was attacked during the Civil Rights Movement. They were um, very pro-movement, right? They were housing civil rights workers from the North and across the South on their land um, to help fight for voting rights, civil rights, um, and importantly for them, economic justice in the agricultural economy. Uh, And they were attacked one night, and they were attacked because a white state trooper had died of a heart attack the previous day during a protest, during a civil rights protest. And so that retaliation against a family who had been a part of the freedom struggle for three generations, 
But that was the moment, right? That was the moment where they almost paid the ultimate price um, for their efforts. That drove the book in many ways. And it's led me down so many paths. You know, I've been in dusty courthouse basements and attics without air conditioning, um, looking for these records and creating some of my own along the way by interviewing people. When we talk about jury duty, I think most Americans know the words a jury of your peers, but um, has that definition changed over time since, you know, 1776? It has changed and it will continue to change. You know, I revisited the uh, Declaration of Independence before coming into this room. And obviously, uh, the he, him pronouns uh, abound in that document. And even if we do credit them with having a more universal sort of understanding or expectation of who the rights and privileges um, of this new American government might uh, be secured for, it's clear from their perspective that it was... It was men, it was uh, white men, it was men of property, we would say. So I'm assuming that means that you had to be a property owner, right? Well, not necessarily. Was they also like businessmen or? Yeah, somebody with some kind of like material standing in the community. Right, so from the, from the founder's perspective, uh, it was very abstract, right, that they expected, especially states, to sort of hash out for themselves. I guess a lot of our cultural evolution as a people could be like documented by looking at how juries have evolved over the last 200 plus years. 100%. I mean, it's, you know, who has, who is expected to have the right to to the courts in this country and then who can serve on a jury that has changed uh i'm a historian of the jim crow period in the american south and at the same time that states uh disfranchised black male and then black female voters they also largely discluded them from the courts they were outlawed Practically, It's not to say that people didn't bring charges in courts. They certainly did. There's very important research coming out now, a new book coming out soon by Dylan Penningroth about the way that black Southerners during Jim Crow, during the worst days imaginable under that regime, used the courts. But by and large, you know, I study Mississippi. The idea of having a black juror um, between, say, 1890 and 1960 uh, would have been largely out of the realm of the possible. Yeah, somehow that is not surprising. Getting even to the idea of jury of your peers in Mississippi in pre-1960 is an easy case, even with like women serving on juries in America. I mean, obviously women could go to court as a defendant, but their peers probably early on in the 1800s weren't reflected on Juries in the jury box. Sure, yeah. I, and it's interesting you said they could go to court as a defendant because that's absolutely true. Now, whether or not they could go as a plaintiff, say, in a civil suit or oh, something yeah. like that, that's always been you know something that was certainly not necessarily in the framers of the government's mind, but was taken up at local and state levels. Oh, but so- sure, uh, jurors would have been male, uh, almost to the T. Man, hearing this conversation makes me realize how critical it is that we continue to learn and study our history, not only because of how 
it affected the previous generations, but also because these are things that continue to affect us to this day. Man, that's something that just makes me want to continue pursuing my interest in history and reading as much as I can so I can learn and you know, ideally contribute to society in a way that helps us to, to avoid the issues of the past. Yeah, I grew up in Mississippi and coming out of the 70s, so a lot of what Dr. Randolph had to say really resonated with me personally, but yeah, it really gets into the fact that the issues that we still do still talk about today, like voting rights, um, that's all important, but we don't often dig beneath that and think about like women not being able to serve on juries, even though they can be judged by a jury. And you know, like, that was unfair. Or but, even, you know. you know, the fact that they potentially couldn't be plaintiffs. I mean, that's a, a big issue too. You know, women's rights are still kind of getting pushed back a bit, but yeah, that's, it's just kind of shocking, shockingly amazing that these things were still, you know, pretty, pretty recent and, yeah. and affected us. I think it's just important to realize that building America wasn't just the founders in the 1700s. It's every generation after that is just as important. So it seems to me as if it goes beyond just gender and race. You know, if I'm just a regular person trying to sue a business owner and the jury is full of business owners, that's not really a jury of my peers. Certainly, yeah. And, you know, suits in in civil cases are interesting, right? They were sort of split off from criminal cases from the beginning. So actually the Sixth and the Seventh Amendment handle uh, the question of jury trials separately for criminal cases in the Sixth and civil cases in the Seventh. So that is, if the state sues you, right, this is what led a lot of the founders toward this, right? Their fear of a centralized, monarchical state coming after you and you not having anyone to, you know, gainsay what the crown says. Right. right? That's a legitimate fear. Sure. <laughs> uh, but they also were were curious about the way that a jury of one's peers could operate in a civil case. And so they had the Seventh Amendment, which has been perhaps more scrutinized by the by the Supreme Court and the judiciary more broadly because, for instance, Seventh Amendment, civil trial worth more than $20, right? <laughs> you Like, they're very specific on what, what could sort of uh, initiate a jury wow, trial. Wow, that is interesting considering how many things in the Constitution are left so broad right. and undefined that they right. set a very specific $20, $20 limit. $20, that was it. <laughs> um, but your question about class... Uh, and how does class sort of fit into jury of one's peers? I think is equally important in terms of uh, jury trials for criminal cases. We know, for instance, that um, poor and working people are more likely to have had an encounter with the criminal legal system to where they could be uh, excluded. We know that it is harder for um, poor and working people to serve on juries just by virtue of having to miss work or miss other obligations that um, are you know harder to get to, even though I understand that the court pays you minimally uh, for the time that they take from you. This is probably a good reminder for all of us that all of the rights that everyone feels very passionately about were never written in stone and have been debated and reframed pretty much from the beginning. Yeah, and it's, you know, it can always change. There is a baseline provided in the Sixth Amendment for, you know, criminal cases with a jury. Frankly, it's harder and harder 
to find a case that goes to trial. Right. I understand the vast majority get dealt with as uh, plea deals. That's right. Yeah, people plea, right? People come with um, all sets, all sorts of sort of pressures not for the case to go to trial, uh, in part because it's a logistical um, ordeal, as you could imagine. You know, people's lives sort of are put on pause. I think we have this law and order you know, television show image of trials and things, you know, the courtroom drama is right. a genre. Right. <laughs> and on American. TV, someone's arrested and then there's a commercial and the next scene, they're in court and there's right. a jury in the box. Right. I mean, a very important case here in in Hayes County, uh, a murder trial, um, one of the people charged uh, has been in the Hayes County jail for almost five years without a trial, right? Hmm. That, that sounds like it's running afoul of a different amendment. Right, the, the right to a speedy trial, right? But it's it's really, um, like I say, when it's up for interpretation and enforcement, right, those two things are always going to be really important. But for sure, you know, I, I'm trying to take my students now, I'm trying to find a pathway for my students in history 1320 the u.s uh, history of the united states from 1877 to present to to visit a courtroom because i just want them to to go through and see what the business of the courts are that's been being done in all of our name and it's actually difficult to find a trial uh, wow <laughs> because they're not that many uh, there are numerous plea deals right that you could seize taking part any day and actually if you sit in the back of the room and just try to watch that you have no idea what's happening Mm. you know i i am continually shocked at just how difficult it is to parse the legal profession when it's all done through pleas Um, and obviously it's not all done but you can go a day and you know unless it's a trial day you're just going to see the same thing, which is a line of lawyers doing plea deals with the prosecutors who are in the room. And you mentioned some of your work involves specific issues around Hayes County. What are some of the issues with jury trials in Hayes County that you see? There are no issues particular to Hayes County, right? This is a phenomenon, especially with um, the tendency for most cases to be pled out instead of going to trial. Um, there's, you know, there are people working across the community to draw, to draw transparency into the system and accountability. District Attorney Kelly Higgins was elected on a platform that promised experimentation with ideas of restorative justice, right? So to de-emphasize the trial and punishment uh, for people who accede uh, that harm was done and instead to think about uh, what meaningful healing and justice might mean outside of a system that is basically premised on people rehabilitating through being caged or locked up. We'll be right back after this. Join. 
Big Ideas host Dan Seed as he takes a look inside the fascinating minds at Texas State University who are forging innovation, research, and creativity in Texas and beyond. Listen on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. New episodes released monthly. That was a really great conversation. I really appreciate you being able to bring in a historical perspective to this conversation and also all the stuff that you learned from the criminal justice researcher. I'm curious, has Dr. Randolph actually ever served on a jury? No, Dr. Randolph didn't have a chance to serve on a jury yet either, but he did have a grad student who has served on a jury recently right here in Hayes County, and she was willing to come in and talk to us about her experience actually being a juror. Uh, My name is Rachel. (laughs) What are you majoring in? I'm going to major in public history. So we heard from your professor, you recently served on a jury. Yeah. (laughs) Have you ever served on a jury before? No, that was actually my first time being summoned. And then like my first time, like actually like getting like picked to be honest. I was like really like, wow, I guess. Okay. What was your first thought when you got your jury summons? I don't want to go. And I was just like, I didn't want to go at first. But then I kept thinking about it. But I was like, you know what? Like, okay, I can't skip out on it. Because, I mean, I'll get in trouble. <laughs> but I was like, um, I, I don't think it'll be like a bad experience either. Walk us through that day. What was it like when you got there? It was very, like, just intimidating because I walked in and I didn't know where I was going. So I think I went to, like, the wrong place, like, a couple of times. And then I, like, finally just, like, got enough courage to ask somebody. So I was like, I'm supposed to be and I think the room. I think the address was like this. But I was like, I don't know where I'm supposed to go, like, the room. And they were like, oh, like. I'll just take you to the room because you're not the first person who's asked. So I went down like the little hall and it was just very intimidating whenever they took me into the room because there was just so many people in there. And they were like, you're just going to like sit here, wait until like your name is called. I just sat there for like a really long time until like they called my name. I think it was probably like four hours later. And so they were like, you can bring a book, you can bring whatever. You're going to be sitting here for a really long time. And I'm like, okay. How many other people were in the room when you got there? I think probably like... I don't know, it was a lot of people. It was like about 60, 70 people. But I wasn't also paying attention because I was just like very like nervous. Like, I don't know why I was nervous just sitting in a room with other people, but it was like, I think about 60, 70 people. Okay, what happened next when they finally came for you? Um, So whenever like they finally like did like call my name and like I went into the room, it was just like the prosecutor and like the defense attorney and the senator like, okay, like just be truthful about your questions. Like you're gonna like be honest about them and like they made me like swear about it they just started asking their questions so they were like um yeah what did they ask you they were like where did you get your news from um they asked me like is any of your family members or a friend like a police officer or a cop then they asked like have you personally been um a victim because ours happens to be a case of domestic abuse and they were like have you or anybody you know been a victim or lost someone to domestic abuse and i was like no and then they were just like asking me like other questions like that they were like do you think like of course like you can be fair and like is it i think it's unbiased yeah like unbiased and i'm like yeah like i believe like i have been i i feel like i could and then you were selected for the jury yeah and then i got selected and i just didn't think they were gonna accept me because i was just like very like nonchalant with their questions because i was so tired i was like I was been there already for like four hours. I was like, I wanted to go home, but like, yeah. So that's never like, they had called me and that's never, I was like, okay, um, I'll be there. I have no choice. So what was it like when the trial actually started and you could focus in on the attorneys talking and presenting their cases? It was, 
I just wasn't expecting it to be so long and just so much like talking between like the defense attorney and like the prosecutor because it was just like a lot of them like doing like I guess like their like their opening like statement and stuff and like that took up like a good like I think like about like an hour or two and then that's whenever like they started like talking a lot with the judge which is apparently very common just for them to do that and so I thought it was just I don't know like I just thought it was gonna be like them talking like the most like I seen about it like on tv and my mom never went to like jury duty so I couldn't ask her like what actually goes on in the courtroom so. right so the trial finished in that one day or did it go on for a couple of days um I know it went I think until like Friday or like that following Monday because I know I came back like midweek back here but I know like it went on, I think, after that, because I said I Wednesday, yeah, like about three more days. Okay. And it was just like a lot of them, like, a lot of them, like, getting, like, witnesses, because, like, it was a domestic abuse case, so it was, like, the police officers who were, like, called to the scene, and then it was, like, family members or, like, friends or, like, co-workers, like, be speaking on behalf of, like, it was, like, the husband and the wife, and they were just, like, it was, like, a lot of that. I think that took up, like, a lot of, like, the first, like, two days or something. And it was just so much talking. Was the jury able to reach a verdict? Yeah. So we actually, I kind of didn't agree with it, but it was like majority rules basically. But we had ended up finding them not guilty. It was kind of like a tough case for me because like I really believed it. And even like the officers were like, no, I strongly like believe it. It was just like going like, it was just a lot of he said, she said. So was it a civil or a criminal trial? It was criminal. Okay. Yeah, because I think this one was a felony case. That's a lot of pressure on you jurors. You're deciding whether or not someone gets to go home. It was. like I think that's like was the very intimidating part, like knowing like, oh, I decide like, like I basically like have a say in like how their life goes from the rest of this day forward. And I just like, it just felt really uneasy, like knowing like that was our responsibility. After the case, how'd you feel? Personally, I just felt like there was, like, not much I could have done, but it just felt like I let her down. And I just wondered, like, how she felt, like, towards us, like, as the, the jury, like, knowing that we decided to decide that what she said, like, wasn't true. And so it just made me feel, like, really guilty. But, I'm like, at the end of the day, there's nothing I can do about it. Um, the other people also, like, voted, because I think there was, like, me and two other people who believed, like, he was guilty. But it was just a lot of like the he said, she said thing and they just wanted like tangible proof. And so I think that's just why like we decided that he wasn't guilty for it. That's kind of a lot for your first time as a jury. Yeah, I like, I think after like that sentence, I think I went home and cried because it was just so much like going on at once. I was like, it could have been like a, I guess like a easier case I could have been assigned to, but it was just like a lot going on. So now that you've done it, how do you feel about uh, your experience of being on a jury? Oh, it was like very intimidating, of course, but I think it was just like knowing like, I guess like your civic, like American duty is like something like that not a lot of people get to go through, but you get to have a say and like a place and like knowing that you're like a part of the system and you have like that responsibility of like your other fellow like American like citizens. Yeah. So it's just yeah. like very patriotic, like a, but yeah, like... <laughs> like more of a sense of ownership like you do have a stake in how things go yeah like that's like really like the like the vibe i guess i was getting just like having more of a say in like someone's like life which i didn't really like that much but like having like a say in like the court system not just having it all decided on the judge but on like the jury duty yeah like on the regular people get to have yeah. a say 
So next time you get a jury summoned, are you gonna try to get out of it? I don't think I will, just because like knowing like the first time and like knowing like how much responsibility it holds, and like I think like even though it was like a like a depressing case, like afterwards, like I felt a little bit better, like knowing like I had that experience and like had a say and like what was going on and like what I believed in. So what would you say to a friend when they get a jury summons now? I would say just go. Like I know like the thought of it might be like oh like I don't want to go, but your being there might make a difference to whoever is like on the jury or who's also like being like involved in the case and stuff and like you don't know like if you could change somebody's life with thoughts being there like it just makes you feel like a better person I guess like in the sense of like community service but not really community service but like just giving back to like your country and like your community is just like giving like a very patriotic feeling but I think you can call it community service you know we're in a time where a lot of people are really upset about the way our system works but jury duty is a way that regular people each of us can have a direct impact on how the justice system is functioning on that day in this case you know it's our opportunity no for sure and i feel like a lot of people are like oh i wish like i could do more and i feel like this is a your way of like doing more it's like participating in this even like if you don't get selected but you can say like at least i went and tried So did you get a chance to talk to a lawyer or anybody else that's actually in the justice system? No, actually, I got to talk to a judge thanks to Dr. Jones. She introduced me to a Hayes County judge who was happy to come in and talk to us, too. My name is Tanner Neidhart. I'm a judge, Hayes County. And it turns out he's actually going to be teaching in our criminal justice program at Texas State. I'm teaching at Texas State this semester a class on courts and criminal procedure. I know there are a lot of different kinds of judges, so uh, where exactly do you serve? Are you a city judge, county judge? Sure. Uh, I preside over a district court. Uh, district courts handle civil cases. They handle felony cases, felony criminal cases. So that's anything from state jail felonies. Though Those can be uh, low-level uh, drug crimes for possession of controlled substances, all the way up to murders and including capital murder. Okay. Uh, so it, that's primaries, what we do, civil, criminal, and it covers anything that happens in Hayes County. It's not just San Marcos. Right. Uh, so we've got, for instance, when we have juries, we have juries uh, jurors who are coming from dripping Wimberley, Buta, Kyle, and even Austin. And that's that's one of the fun things is when those people from Austin show up, oftentimes they didn't even know they were in Hayes County until they got a jury summons that said, we know you have an Austin residence, but Austin is now part of Hayes. How important is it when we look at the makeup of our juries to really have a diverse pool of people from you know, like different social backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, different cultural backgrounds, you know, how much, how important is that in building confidence that our system is really working for the people? You got right to the point. It's very important for people to believe in our system. They need to come, they need to see what is happening, and they need to believe that it is a system that works for them, for everyone in the community. And, and you know, you're getting close to, to, to sensitive topics, why certain groups aren't showing up. And a student just said to me the other day in class, a young female, she said, my roommate got a summons and she didn't go because she says, why am I going to go to this? They're not going to listen to me. Well, if her community, her group, if they believe that no one's going to listen to them, 
then I don't necessarily blame them for not. We need to do a better job reaching out, using soft power to say, look, you want to be here. And I think that the students that are listening to that message and the jurors who are coming in, they're seeing that because the importance of what we're doing Mm -hmm. and the magnitude of what we're doing is only going to show to all communities when they've seen it and they've been participants in it. Because once you've been a participant in it, that's totally different than when you're from the outside and looking at it and criticizing it. Did you ever serve on a jury? I did not. And I've never even had the opportunity to set in jury selection. I tried over 110 cases uh, when I was in criminal uh, practice. And then later I've done a few civil trials, uh, but I've never gotten to sit there in the position of the jurors, and I'd love to one day. Hey, you've been an attorney and you're now a judge. Uh, you've seen the system work from both sides of the bench. In your experience, have over the years, have you seen a change in people's willingness to serve? When I first began, I was in Bear County, mm. a huge county that has a central jury system, and that's important to discuss because 500 people will show up every day in Bear County and they will go into a giant room and one judge will talk to all of them and then they will just wait and then they have dozens of courts and when those courts need someone they will call down to the jury room and say we have a case that is of this gravity we need 50 jurors and they take the first 50 from that room take them upstairs Now here, what's unique is that we have the jurors come to the courtroom and they are already assigned to a particular judge in a particular court. If the question is, is there differences in the juries and their ways of thinking on the exact same questions, you bet there is. And that's something that's really stood out to me is how much jurors' expectations and demands and attitudes have changed. Hey, Ronnie, so I know early on you were talking about how your wife likes to watch Law & Order and those types of shows. Did the judge talk any about how how Hollywood affects the jury process in terms of people not really (laughs) understanding how it functions? Yeah, he did say he had to do a little bit of teaching uh, with new jurors. Right, or or educate them that this is not TV. Uh, Yes, sir, we do. We immediately start telling them this is not Hollywood. What you see on TV is not what you're going to get today. But I'm going to lay out the rules and the expectations for the, for you, and uh, I think they should be simple enough that that you follow them. But the truth is, the jury system really isn't part of. Or excuse me, the jury selection process isn't part of what we see on TV. You know, they skip straight to the witness who's on the stand, and then right. there's the cross examination. Uh, this process, I think, is something that's been overlooked on TV, you know, like for the students, I'm I'm teaching here at Texas State this semester, and uh, the students, 20 of them already came to a jury selection, and I had them journal about it afterwards, and I've read those, and they just couldn't believe what they saw. They didn't know how the system works, and these are students all in criminal justice. So it's great. We need to get people to understand the way it's working. And that's part of why I wanted to be here at the university is these students are going to go out into the world all over. Let's have them have the knowledge about 
jury selection that they can share. And I think they're going to do it by the, the reactions that we got. They enjoyed the system. They respect the system. They see why it matters. So what's the biggest surprise for people when they get a jury summons for the first time? Well, I think the first thing they say is, how do I get out of it? <laughs> yeah, I'll be 100% honest with you, Ronnie, and say that that's my first thought whenever I get a jury summons. Yeah, I think that's pretty common. I think most of us uh, think just the same thing. But And the judge says he sees that, and he's trying to shift our perspective a little bit. You know, you get something in the mail like that, and it wasn't very long ago in American history when you could get a letter in the mail from the government and it said that you have to go somewhere, but you're going away to a, a country far away and you're going away to war and you may not come back for six months. You may not come back for a year. You may not ever come back. They get a letter now and they say, and it says, we need you to come in for a couple of days, maybe a week. So if we compare what's being asked, I understand it's a sacrifice to maybe leave your children or leave someone for whom you're caretaking or to leave your job. But uh, this is part of the sacrifice to have this incredible system that we have that takes care of communities. You know, I remember going to register to vote when I was 18, um, someone saying that if I didn't show up for jury duty after getting a summons, I could be arrested. You could be held in contempt. Uh, that's true. Does that often happen? Well, what if I tell you, then uh, <laughs> everybody might know. It can happen. Let's just say that it can happen. Okay. You're subject to a $500 penalty okay. uh, for not coming. Uh, there has to be a process that you go through. Um but look, I, I, I hate using you know, the hard power to get sure. people there. I'd rather use soft power. And that's why that's one of my initiatives as a judge is to get people to understand why they want to come to jury duty, not why they feel forced. Is there something we can do just as citizens, as regular people, to make the process easier and more accessible? I think that's on us. Okay. I mean, I think it's on the system. I think that goes to the soft power that I'm talking about, where instead of compelling people in a lot of ways we need to get the word out and make them understand you want to come then once they get there we streamline it then once they're in the courtroom we don't waste their time we get to business and when we're in business uh, i find that jurors are very engaged and even when they finish the jury selection process if they're not selected but especially those who are selected and serve on the jury they have a greater appreciation and as I ask them now, as they go out into the community afterwards, if they believe that it was worth their time, tell people about it. When, when your neighbor says, ah, I just got this jury summons, how, how am I going to get out of jury? I know you went. Don't tell them, here's the trick. Tell them, you should go because it's worth it. It's, this system and what we do uh, is really amazing that, that we are able to govern ourselves and jurors and the people of the community decide what is going to be the facts that will arise to a crime or the facts that will not. And then once, if they decide that there was a crime, what the punishment will be. Once they see the importance of that, I think they'll come because I think a lot of these jurors, after, when I talk to them afterwards, they're going to come back. What's your elevator pitch to someone about why they should be excited about jury duty? Once you've done it, you're going to appreciate it. 
And uh, so I think that's it, right? That's the elevator. And what do I mean by that, though, is I, I find that once they come, they will realize how important it is. They will realize we're not trying to waste their time. They will realize that this is one of the greatest things that they can do for their community. It's one of the most direct things they can do for their community. And so when they do it, they walk out of there, and I think they feel a little bit prouder of being an American where we have this unique system. Not many other places do this. You know, I've done justice reform projects all over Latin America and Mexico and Colombia. I go and teach the trial advocacy system in Peru. Uh, I enjoy those classes. They are asking us to come down there and talk about our system because they see that it works and they want to employ it. And we are lucky, you know, we, we sometimes, it, it seems like an inconvenience, but realize that people all over the world, they would really be lucky and fortunate and they desire to be inconvenienced like we are. Because these stories turn up sometimes in odd news of people giving outrageous excuses for why they shouldn't be on a jury. What's the most unusual excuse someone's given you? You know, I hear a lot of unique ones, but I think it's probably the the good ones mm-hmm. that I'd rather say. Okay, uh, sure. So let me give you this one. And you don't have to say whether or not the excuse worked. Well, you'll know by the end of this story. Okay. Um, so uh, a young man comes in, and I had said uh, this jury may last into next week because I give them a, a heads up of how long it will. We expect it to last. The attorneys give me notice. We think we have this many witnesses and. Given the complexity of the case, it could go into next week. A young man raised his hand. He said, I'm not trying to get out of jury duty, but you said this might go into next week and I won't be in the country next week. And I said, interesting. You know, I get so many that I'm going to Hawaii or I'm going away on a vacation. But I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm being deployed. Okay. I said, when are you being deployed? He says, I'm being deployed on Friday. Where are you going? said, I'm going to the Far East. Now, that's a place right now that is hot. Uh, and to go over there, you could get into some, uh, some bad times. And I said, oh, my gosh, you, you mean you're leaving? This is a Monday. You're leaving on Friday? And you got this jury Simmons and you still showed up? And he said, yeah. I said, well, you know, you could have called probably and, and we could have gotten it out. And he said, no. I said, well, why did you do it? He said, because that's why I'm going away to these other countries. That's why I fight, is to protect our right to do things like this at home. And it just hit me really hard. He's going to go and put his life on the line, and he still shows up to jury duty. And he still does it because he believes in the system so much and what it gives to us as a community. And... You know, when we complain about what we're asked to do to show up for one morning to maybe be put on a jury, here's this guy who is going away, and yet he still comes because he knows how much it matters. And I thought that really said a lot, and it says a lot about the importance to America of having a system where we judge our peers and we decide if they've committed a crime. Not to have some government official make that decision. Not to have judges make that decision. Instead, to have the people. 
And he knew that. So I said, well, sir, we may go into the next week, so you'll be excused, but I want to thank you. And he got up and he walked out the courtroom and there were jurors on each side, 50, 60 on each side, and they all started clapping for him. And so when you ask Rodney how they try to get out of jury duty, I tell stories like that, and they often don't try anymore. Man, after hearing the judge tell that story, I honestly don't even know how to react. Just as he was saying it, I could imagine everything in my mind going on. I know, right? It was so vivid that, I mean, he really did a great job of painting the picture there. But um, it also really makes you step back and think about what our individual role is and making sure the system is really, you know, by the people and for the people. So now that you've had a chance to talk to all these faculty members, how do you feel about the jury selection process now? I actually, I think I'll feel a lot differently the next time I see a jury summons show up in my mailbox. If anything, it kind of tapped into, I don't know if it's like my sense of patriotism or community service or whatever, but, you know, it really put in perspective how important each of our participation is and making sure things function the way that we imagine they should. Do you think your wife's going to enjoy this episode? Uh, Yeah, I think she will. At least I'm hoping she will, and I'm not in trouble for um, bringing our home TV habits into it. But it was a lot of fun conversations, and it was really eye-opening even for me. And I like to think I'm pretty up on how the system works. Eddie, right now what I'm really wondering is what do you have coming for us next month? So you know I'm a big supernatural horror movie fan, right? Oh yeah, we talk about that a lot. In the so office. of course, October's coming around, Halloween time is coming around, so Ooh. we have a special ghost-esque episode. Ooh, something spooky for the holidays or something scary? Uh, I think it's scary for some people for sure. <laughs> okay, I can't wait to hear it. See you next month. Go Bobcats! This podcast is a production of the Division of Marketing and Communications at Texas State University. Podcasts appearing on the Texas State Podcast Network represent the views of the host and guests, not of Texas State University.